Hey friends, before we get to today's episode, I want to talk to you about unicorns. You know I think we're all unicorns because we have special gifts and talents, and because we're all so special, it's important that we invest in things that will help us get to the next level. In fact, 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot, and for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big off your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com slash startups. Like we're trying to create a future that has not existed, a future where black people have dignity, where we are are belonging to every aspect of our society without exclusion. Like that has never happened in this country. And I think that like, that's what motivates me to go to work every day. I think that also is what we will have to do as a society, as a country, if we do wanna have a multiracial democracy that includes everyone. And I feel like that sort of prophetic dreaming is how you get there. Hey friends, hey, I hope you are well. We have a special guest for the holiday season, my friend, mentor, and civil rights attorney, Antonio Ingram. Antonio is truly a light. I think releasing this conversation during such a precarious and challenging time in the world is important. It feels like polarization and grief are at its peak. But Antonio's story serves as a great reminder that there is always room for joy. And we've talked about this on the show before, but most things in life are not black and white. There's a lot of nuance, a lot of gray, and being able to hold space in the gray, coming from a place of and as opposed to or, can really help you remain hopeful during challenging times. And so my hope is that this conversation will lift your spirits. We cover a number of topics, including faith, racial justice, authenticity, and joy. And we also talk about Antonio's journey to achieving his dreams while working through the intersectionality of his various identities. Before we get to this conversation, let me tell you a bit more about Antonio. Antonio Lavelle Ingram II, yes, his full government name. (laughs) He serves as the assistant counsel at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. He is a graduate of Yale College and UC Berkeley Law. He previously served as a federal judicial law clerk for the Honorable Ivan L. Lamel in the Eastern District of Louisiana in New Orleans, and then for Chief Judge Roger L. Gregory for the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in Richmond, Virginia. He also completed a Fulbright Public Policy Fellowship in Malawi, where he worked with the government and served in their anti-corruption bureau. Yes, very fascinating work. He's had such an interesting journey, and I just can't wait for you all to hear Antonio's inspiring journey, so let's get to it. Right, Antonio, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I've been wanting to have you on for like a year now, but you are (laughs) fighting for our rights. You are just out here in court, you know, fighting for civil rights and doing extremely important work. So I'm so happy that you're here to share your story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And so what I realized too, is that this is a full circle moment. I don't know if you remember how we met but it was like 2015. Do you remember in 2015 what we were doing and how we met? I do not. Remind me. So the tables were turned. You were interviewing me. You were interviewing Oh, yeah. Yes, a summer associate position. 
So you were asking me questions with your serious <laughs> face. <laughs> That's hilarious. Full circle. I know. And so now I get to interview you under different circumstances, of course. But yeah, so I want to start from the beginning. Let's talk about how you grew up. Tell us about your childhood, your upbringing, little Antonio, your friends and family. Yeah, I love to take y'all back on a little journey. So I was born in Oakland, but I grew up in LA. And but I saw a family in Oakland. So I sort of spent my childhood between my dad's family and the Bay Area. And then my mom's family in South LA. I grew up in a working class community. It was pretty interesting because I grew up specifically in Southgate, which is majority Latinx. And so I was like the one little black kid in a community that I think my grandparents had moved into after, you know, white flight. And so it was a changing demographic time. And so I sort of always grew up knowing what it meant like to be a minority even though it wasn't sort of the traditional white-black binary we think of. And I think that really has shaped sort of my background, even my appreciation for like Latinx culture. And then in terms of sort of my childhood, I realized a few weeks ago that I'm the only extrovert in my family. My parents, my grandparents, my siblings are all introverts. And so I think part of it is that I became outspoken because I kind of had to, because I had like shy family members and I had people who are more introverted. And so I think part of my personality sort of became more emphasized because of that context. I also grew up in my grandparents' church. They founded a Pentecostal church in South LA. And for me, it was a really beautiful community because all the people in my church had immigrated from Louisiana and Texas and Mississippi. And so they still carried those traditions. So we would have potlucks after church. We would have people bring fruit from the trees in their neighborhood. There's this collectivism and this community-based care that you really don't see in urban centers as much as you would expect or hope to see. And so for me, it was this interesting sort of bubble that I grew up in. And so I feel like that really did impact sort of even the work I do today, being in the South and working in civil rights communities. But yeah. I love that. I love that. And yeah, you can see it reflected in the work that you're doing today. And I'm also just a little curious about little Antonio's personality. So you said extroverted. Were there other things? Were you an overachiever growing up? Did this interest in law come later in life? Did you know these are the problems you wanted to solve? Tell us about little Antonio. So I feel like it was interesting. As a child, because I had a lot of introverted family members, I sort of adapted. And so despite being an extrovert, I would also spend time reading books by myself a lot. I would spend time gardening in our backyard. So I sort of, I I adapted to having extrovert, introvert tendencies. And so in some ways, as a child, I was like pretty shy in in, in certain circumstances. I think just to respond to the the environment around me. I also feel like as a child, I feel like people oftentimes viewed me as having very strong preferences. And I think part of that is, you know, being in a community where I was also a minority. I feel like I had to speak up because if I did not speak up, no one would really pay attention to my needs or my wants. And so I think that strong preferences has sort of translated into who I am today when I'm looking at issues of injustice. But also, I think because I was always sort of by myself in some ways demographically, I learned to form coalitions and friendships with people who could both support me and I could support them and their goals. And so I, for me, it's been a very, I think, a collaborative friendship and a collaborative childhood people would say, sort of characterized me when I was in my young years. I love that. 
And, you know, you did mention that your family is working class. How did you get access to various opportunities? Because you've been able to do pretty amazing things and have opportunities in various elite institutions that aren't always, you know, accessible to people coming from working class families. Was there a person? Was there a mentor? Was there a program? Tell us a little bit about that. I think one thing that I I always remember as I've gotten older, that even though my family was working class, we were also working class in an urban environment which in some ways was very beneficial because we had adjacency to more fluid communities. So for example, one program that really was dispositive in my life was a program called College Match. And they worked with inner city kids in LAUSD and other school districts. And they provided us with SAT prep. They provided us with college counseling. They took us on a trip to the East Coast to visit places like Yale and Harvard and Columbia. And this was a group that was based out of West LA. And so despite the fact that, you know, my own sort of zip code may have been resource scarce, a mere hour away, there was a whole different world of abundance. And because of that adjacency, we were really able to luckily benefit. I also was able to do a program through UC Berkeley, where they picked one student from each LAUSC high school that was sort of BIPOC and working class. And they sent us to UC Berkeley for a summer of instruction as a sophomore in high school. And so I really got exposed to a collegiate environment at a young age at that stage. I also was able to do a program called Medicines Global, which came to my high school and they held a photo essay contest. And the winners got to go to Nepal and go on a a trek and deliver medical supplies. And so I actually found out I got into Yale from an internet cafe in Kathmandu. And so it is really fascinating. I think I was really blessed and privileged to despite having a family that did not have the resources to have sort of in the periphery all these groups and interventions to really help break a cycle of generational poverty and generational disenfranchisement. But to me, it also feels sobering because I think about my friends who come from more rural communities who don't have that adjacency to these institutions and, and sources of resources and how much more challenging even for those people, you know, there are Black people in Mississippi. There are Black people in Alabama who just don't have that dynamic that I had as a Black person in South LA. Yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing that and that insight too, because you're right, just being adjacent to these programs, even if you're not specifically in that community, how helpful that can be. And I see it reflected in my own story and testing into certain schools. I didn't, I never went to a home school or a school in my area. I always tested into a certain school for more opportunities and being in the city and being in LA, how that's certainly been very helpful for my trajectory and how we probably need to do more for rural communities. 100%. Yeah, I'm sure you're probably doing some of that work. So I am curious about your career now and the work you're doing. Tell us about how you got here, you know, this focus on civil rights litigation. I'd love to know. Yeah, for me, it's been really interesting because when I applied to law school, I wrote a personal statement about doing sort of public interest law. But, you know, being a first-generation professional, there are oftentimes financial considerations that may at times delay that actualization. And so for me, you know, I went to a law firm for a couple of seasons. And while I was at those places, I really realized that doing the pro bono work was what I found to be most fulfilling. And even when I was clerking, working on cases involving civil rights felt the most, you know, life-giving. And so for me, professionally, it really showed me that 
you know, for some lawyers, they can do nine patent cases and one pro bono case a year, and that's satiating. For me, that would not be the case. Like, I wanted to have a career that was more dedicated full-time. And for me in particular, I think one thing that was sort of personally animated my transition to being a civil rights lawyer and particularly a racial justice lawyer full-time was a church experience I had. So when I got to Berkeley in 2011, I joined a church and it was a beautiful community. It was multiracial, but I would say it was still very a culturally white community. We would sing songs and we had worship styles that were very, I would say, evangelical in a mainstream way. And for the longest time, the community sort of was neutral politically and did not talk about race or class or inequality. And I was in that community from 2011 until 2021, on and off. But even when I, you know, left to go clerk and do my Fulbright, I still had connections and I would still go home for retreats sometimes to those places. And in 2020, after the murder of George Floyd, the church had a reckoning and they really felt like they should try to be more intentional about, you know, addressing issues of racial injustice and of inequality. And I was tasked with joining this racial justice task force. And we had, you know, tried to create curriculum for our Bible study groups. We tried to partner with Black churches. We had all these grandiose plans. But the church actually fell apart because of the the tension and backlash to trying to create more racial equity in, in a community that was not ready for it. It's interesting, there's this Bible verse that talks about wine and, and wine skins. You know, in the Bible, they used to put wine in these sort of animal hide-based containers. And when you put wine into a wine skin, the wine skin expands. And so if you put new wine, which expands, into an old wine skin, the wine skin will burst and leak out. And so there's this Bible metaphor of you have to put new wine and new wine skins. And in that community, I think we were trying to put new wine into an old wine skin. And so it led to a rupturing. It led to a, a, a destruction. And for me, during that season, a community that had, in some ways, been a second family, but seeing how they could not love me and my racial identity, they could not support me in that sort of aspect of who I am, I realized that this is something that's really core to me, that I don't want to compartmentalize myself. And if I wasn't going to do it at church, why should I do it at work? And so in that sense, that sort of religious experience helped motivate me to apply to be a civil rights lawyer at the Legal Defense Fund and to really pursue a life of wholeness and integration where I can bring all parts of me to all of my realms in a way that I think historically, especially as like a first-gen professional, you tell yourself, well, I can sort of have certain parts of myself lie dormant for pragmatic reasons. But I think for me, like that's not how we're meant to live. And I feel like the summer of George Floyd and that experience really had awakened in me a desire for wholeness and unity. Wow. I love that so much. And I did not realize that because I feel like the way that you live your life outside looking in, even before George Floyd, was certainly reflective of a person who has embraced all parts of yourself. And I think, and that's what I've always admired about you. I remember meeting you and I said, wait, he's gay, he's black. He's Christian. He's liberal. He's involved in all of these different communities, these diverse set of communities. How does he do it? How does he own all parts of himself? I find that so admirable. And it's interesting that that tension kind of bubbled up with the church experience 
And I'm curious now about how you're able to embrace all of those identities and how does that feel? It feels great. I mean, for one, I'm now at a church in D.C. where I'm actually in leadership. I'm a co-director of community. And one of our pastors is a Black queer woman. And we are a church that intentionally is anti-racist, is queer affirming, is feminist, is social justice oriented. And so having a community where there are people who reflect sort of all of God's people and, and creation and having that be an anchoring place, it's really sort of fascinating sometime. During this year, I spent a lot of work in, in my time in Texas. And so I would oftentimes go to Texas in the week and then come home on the weekend. And so it was just sort of this very beautiful, I'll, I'll be a jarring experience to be in a place where I'm advocating for them to not be homophobic or racist and then to come home on a weekend to D.C. and be in a worship service led by a trans woman. And so it has been this really anchoring experience for me. But it's also been an experience where I think that, you know, so many times when you are diverse and you have different identities, there are seasons where you will feel more comfortable in certain spaces than other spaces. I think about in my Texas work, I think I do definitely lean in to my Black identity in that space because that is sort of where I feel like I can make the most contribution. Because there are other, you know, civil rights groups on the ground. There's Lambda Legal. There is, you know, the ACLU that does a lot of great work. And so I think when I'm, you know, working in that capacity, I am trying to be a voice for racial justice and Blackness. And that doesn't mean that my other identities are not salient or important, but I think that we have to work in coalitions. We have to provide perspectives that are, are being ignored and in those circumstances, oftentimes, that's what I'm able to provide in a way that's unique and I think actionable. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that lens and that framework regarding intersectionality and, you know, how you lean into different identities. And I certainly can relate to a certain extent to that. And I think you've had this successful career thus far. You've done so much, especially for your age of just from the Fulbright to, you know, working in private practice to working in civil rights. And I'm curious about perhaps maybe a challenge that you've experienced and how you were able to overcome that. Yeah, I think for me, a challenge was really during my first time in private sector. You know, I'm a first-generation professional, as we talked about. That was my first really full-time job and trying to navigate working at a big firm and norms regarding, you know, how to ask for help, how to get feedback on work product. And it was like really confusing in the beginning of my career. But one thing I, I felt to be, you know, a way I was able to help overcome those sort of difficulties that stem from just having a background where I'm the first lawyer in my family is find a good mentor. And, you know, ironically, the mentor that I found was uh, an older Irish man. And this man having no demographic overlaps with me besides being male and cisgender really was a champion for me and really helped instruct me and, and growing. I was able to have hard conversations with me that I don't think even a person of color could have had. And I think for me, having learned how to access mentorship from people who may not look like me, who may not have my same background, was one way in which I, I overcame. Because I think the hard part that I have noticed, especially among successful women, successful people of color, successful queer people, in order to get to where we get, we oftentimes have to like at least put on a veneer of perfection 
you have to put on veneer that you've never made a mistake. And I think that leads to a problem where the people who come after you of those demographics don't have access to models because you now have become this sort of like archetype that is almost not human. That's just like a brilliant trial attorney, a brilliant judge, a brilliant professor who's never had any setbacks. And I feel like part of that is due to systemic issues that we, that cause us to put on those veneers. But still, nonetheless, it creates a problem where I think when you are a young person in elite institutions, it is hard sometimes to find mentors who look like you because of that dynamic. And so for me, I had to learn how to find mentors that, you know, may not have my background, but has a, a, a view of the world that I don't have that can help empower me to navigate their colleagues who oftentimes look like them and not me. And so I feel like for me, that was one way in which I was able to over- overcome the challenge of just being young and inexperienced in a place that requires a high level of of output, a high level of, of expertise, and a high level of just social acumen oftentimes in those spaces. Yeah. Yeah. No, those insights are great. And I agree. And I think that the veil of perfectionism that we have to operate behind is challenging. And I'm hoping with this podcast that we can kind of pierce that veil. Oh my gosh, not like pierce the corporate veil, but pierce, (laughs) (laughs) you know, pierce that veil a little bit so that people can look at, see our humanity, but you're right coming up. That is challenging. And so, you know, do you do anything differently now? Do you have more of those honest conversations with mentees or do you feel like you're in a space, you know, you're my friend, obviously. So I know you, but looking at you, you are perfection. You are the black exceptional man who is doing civil rights work. I feel like if I have, especially when I'm like off the record, when I'm talking <laughs> to like people who reach out to me on LinkedIn, I love to keep it 100. I love to talk about the challenges because even, you know, part of why I do civil rights work is that like I'm a beneficiary of civil rights battles that our for parents fought for us. I think about, you know, I went to a high school that was a Teach for America volunteer site. Like, that's how educationally, like, disenfranchised my, like, K-12 experience was. So when it came time to apply in places like Yale, I amazingly had a great SAT verbal and writing score. I did not have a great, great quantitative reasoning score. And I know that because of the affirmative action, like, I was able to get into a place like Yale that was able to make up for my like lackluster mathematics score. But of course, like why did that score like look the way it did? It's because I had bad teachers for like 10 years of my life who never taught me how to count. And so I think being just like open about the ways in which civil rights has impacted my life and my trajectory so that when people are taking tests and they may not get their perfect SAT or LSAT, to know that that's fine, that if you get into these institutions, you will be fine that those numbers don't define you, those numbers don't dictate your future, and that when people do purport to having the 4.0s and the 180s sort of, you know, perfect SATs, like that's one pathway, but that's not everyone's pathway. And for most of us who do not come from rich families that give us test prep that can intervene when we have lackluster educational experiences and supplement, you know, failings of public school systems, it's okay to still strive for excellence and know that you will be okay, even if you don't have the same sort of background as the people who you're seeing on the Forbes 40 under 40 or whatever they have nowadays. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that's great insight too, great advice and something I think we certainly didn't have access to. So I'm glad you're having those conversations. So friends, we're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about another amazing podcast, and that's Latinx Empower, hosted by Thaisa Fernandez, which is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Latinx Empower is a podcast that features interviews with top-level executives, entrepreneurs, and innovators from Latin America, aiming to demystify the tech industry by providing listeners with insider perspectives and insights from Latin American leaders who have succeeded in their careers. I think you'll love a recent episode on toxic positivity in the workplace. Listen to Latinx Empower wherever you get your podcast. And, you know, you're someone who really just embodies joy and you do really challenging work. And so I'm curious about where your joy comes from. How do you cultivate it? What do you do in your free time? And does it come from work? Tell us a little bit about your joy because you are that person, which I, <laughs> I love. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think part of why, despite the ways in which religion and Christianity has been used, to hurt people of color and queer people and women. The reason I still consider myself a follower of Jesus is that I believe the Christian narrative is one of joy. It is one where empires will slay you, but there's resurrection. There's narratives of, of giants who challenge your community, but you defeat them. There's, you know, narratives of, of people being cast into dens of lions and leaving unscathed. You know, there's narratives of people who get, you know, thrown in the fiery furnaces, but come out just smelling like smoke. And I think that that is the, the world that I seek to cultivate. And that's the world that I try to bring to my civil rights work, a world where it's actually irrational to believe the way I believe, that we will have a country that is a true multiracial democracy, that we will have a place where women and people of color have full bodily autonomy to live in the ways that they choose to live. And I feel like for me, that is grounded in a Judeo-Christian worldview. You know, last week we had a retreat in Atlanta and we went to the MLK Memorial. And I'm realizing that despite the fact that I think now many progressives tend to be more secular, the people who are getting, you know, dogs, you know, thrown on them and, and water cannons sprayed on them, they were doing that in part because they had a worldview that they were going to see God's goodness in the land of the living. Like these were not people who had an atheistic worldview that was mired by despondency and pessimism. They were people who believed in the improbable because they had a view of a spirituality that was one of redemption and reconciliation and rescue. And I feel like I, I live in that legacy. I live in that inheritance. I think about my grandma who, you know, was raised in Jim Crow, who was born in 1924 and could not vote until 1965. And I think about how she, despite all odds, kept hope alive. Like she still drove her grandchildren to SAT prep, even though she hadn't gone to college. And I think just like the, the level of hope that is like in just part of the Black experience in this country for me is through a lens of faith and is through a lens of community and spirituality. And that's sort of what grounds me in my hope 
Because I think many people are right. If you're just looking at CNN and our political system, like there's not really a lot of room for joy. But for me, I believe that, you know, if it's not good, it's not the end. And so we're working towards that goodness. We're working towards that future where we'll all be free. And for me, the conduit to that is one of spirituality. It is one of, of union with the divine. And that's sort of where I think a lot of my, my perspective where this work does stem from, because I literally can't imagine doing this work without that paradigm, because you're just going against what seems like insurmountable odds. You're going against systems that are powerful, that have been, you know, working for the last like 400 years. Like these are not new, they just have transformed. But I do believe that, you know, through working in community and through having a worldview that is disbelieving in a triumphant victory, of course, there will be joy because you can't exist without that. Wow. Oh my gosh. I feel like you just took us to like church and a political speech and like, but it was heartfelt. So it was a little bit like Oprah. Wow. So many gems there. And you said something, if it's not good, it's not the end, right? We are always fighting for better. We are always moving forward with faith and with hope and with joy because otherwise you're right. You can't do this work. And I think you're a great example of someone who can engage in this work and still be joyous and still be hopeful, but not necessarily disengage. Because I, sometimes I see two camps. Sometimes I see people, they're in the activist work, but they have this unfortunate perception of reality because mm-hmm. there is so much bad, but it yeah. takes a huge toll on their mental health. And then I have other people, sometimes in the well-being space, in the wellness space, who are really leaning into this joy, but they're disengaging with the world and what's actually going on. And it's being able to find that happy medium. And everybody's life is different and career is different. So I'm not telling everyone to go into civil rights. (laughs) But I do think really understanding the problems that we're facing and also leaning into joy and trying to fix them is what we have to do as citizens, you know, as people. And one thing I've noticed, especially through my work in civil rights in the last couple of years, When I'm going into a community where, you know, kids are being bullied because they're queer or black people are feeling like their votes don't matter because of racial gerrymandering maps, they already know they have problems. Like they don't need me to come into those spaces and reaffirm like why they should feel bad about their situation. What they do need some time is levity. They need someone who is going to be hope filled and let them know that like we are fighting for you but we also are going to try to encourage you in the midst of this battle. And I feel like that is actually a more powerful tool to try to shine a light to help people sort of feel encouraged in the midst of trauma and trial. And I just remember I was in Texas speaking at a university a few months ago, and we were just discussing legislation. And it was just an informative conversation where I helped do some public education And one of the faculty afterwards told me, thank you, I feel much more hopeful now because I know what's going on. And just the notion of like letting knowledge and letting discourse lead to people feeling empowered and feeling like they can confront the challenges that they're having. I think that's a a bigger sort of of tool to fight against these systems than to come there and commiserate. They have enough people to commiserate. (laughs) Like that's all they're doing right now, right? We need someone who's going to help uplift and help sort of try to change these circumstances. Yeah, yeah. 
And speaking of uplifting and changing, have you figured out your life's purpose and why you're here? Yeah, I feel like that is still being unfolded. One thing I do think about is I sometimes read, you know, obituaries of lawyers and I look at like the cases that they've worked on being cited and that does not feel like my life purpose. Like I don't want my obituary to just talk about the stuff I litigated. That feels like a life not well lived. I think I had sort of a revelation about this a few years ago. My grandma passed away at the age of 94 in 2021, but she had her 90th birthday a few years prior. And at that 90th birthday, people came to celebrate with her. And, you know, these are people who had attended the church she and my grandpa founded. And I just heard so many stories of ways in which she loved people well to the point where their children are coming to say how they're grateful for her impact. And I feel like that's the legacy I want to live, a life where when I'm gone, people will say, like, I made their lives better. A life where it's not easily quantifiable based on money or prestige or accolades, but it's in that human capital. It's in the people who I may never even know who can say, like, I have felt more belonging or dignity because of the actions of Antonio. That's sort of my goal. That's sort of my passion. And I think because, you know, there's in this like Christian metaphor, there's people who you'll see in heaven who'll say like, you helped me get here. And I think I want to have that sort of equivalent paradigm. Like I want there to be people who say, oh, Antonio helped me, you know, my kids get into Harvard because we fought for race conscious admissions, or I was able to create more wealth for my family because we ended up having economic justice. I, I want those systemic changes and I want that to be part of my legacy, even if it's never known in a broad way. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great purpose. I think you're living in parts of that already, which I think is wonderful. And, you know, I know you said what your case is, the line of cases is not exactly your purpose, but I am curious about a case that you've worked on or an experience in the civil rights work that you've done that's changed you or that's really meaningful to you? I guess a case we currently have pending. So we have a case where we sued South Carolina over their congressional maps. We sued them alleging that the maps were both the product of intentional discrimination and a racial gerrymander. And this case sort of started right before I got to LDF. And so I helped file the complaint. I was in the discovery process. I took the, I defended the depositions of both our plaintiffs. At trial, I handled both their direct examinations and we won. And we are now currently waiting to hear from the Supreme Court. We had an oral argument in October. And that case, I think, really changed me because I had never sort of been in a case start to finish like that. And to see the clients and every iteration of that season of advocacy. And so for me, even as we were waiting at the Supreme Court, I was like pretty emotional because you just see people who have like fought so hard for their communities just to have like equal rights and representation and thinking about how these are people who I've been entrusted to help. It really did show me sort of a new side of me. I think about during even our depositions when I felt like some of the opposing counts were being overly aggressive 
I just saw a certain side of myself come out that I was sort of shocked to see. And I think to use a Christian metaphor, there's sort of a dualistic animal that gets involved, the lion and the lamb. And I feel like both of those things come out in this advocacy I've been doing. And I think it's because I'm passionate about voting rights and these and my clients feeling like their voices are being heard. And so, you know, I think people talk about when they have children, there's new sides of themselves that come out. I like for me that this case has been sort of in that vein, seeing a new type of advocacy and passion. When you start to see how people who are just asking for what the Constitution requires have to put up such a fight, it does make you sort of become a more zealous advocate because you're like, wait, we're not even asking for like <laughs> any entitlements. This is not asking for any preferences. We're just asking you to like not be racist. <laughs> and for me, that has been sort of a beautiful thing that has really, I think, shaped me and changed me through this litigation. Yeah, it just shows how much you care. And when you said you've changed a little bit, do you think you're seeing more of the lion come out in some of these? <laughs> You know, I, I think seen so. Lion Antonio, so I'm curious, but <laughs> no, I think so, and I think part of that is also is really fascinating. So I think the lion Antonio has also been suppressed because I think as a larger black man, like I have not had the privilege to express emotions in a way that some of my colleagues can. But I think I've, I've realized in this last season, like it's okay to be upset about injustice. Like it's okay to be like fully human. Cause I think that's the thing that like racism and stereotypes does to people. It dehumanizes us. It tells us that parts of ourselves are not things that should be celebrated or even should exist. And I think there's this sort of, I would almost call it like the way in which systemic biases and stereotypes impact people of color and queer people and women. It almost creates a, a society where we're supposed to self-mutilate. We're supposed to cut off parts of ourselves in order to belong. When other demographics do not have to cut off those parts of themselves, they can live in those spaces without apology. And so for me, I think like, yes, my personality is naturally more jovial. I think I am sort of more lamb-like in certain ways, but I also think there's parts of me that do need to come out for the sake of like advocacy, that for the sake of, of representing clients, because... Here's the problem, right? Like, if I don't have a lion and I'm fighting wolves, like, they're unapologetically being wolves. <laughs> and I think there's this, this cynicalness in me that thinks that they want us to be lambs on purpose all the time because they know that's how the power of this equilibrium stays. And so I think parts of why I've leaned into, like, different aspects of my personality in this last season is because the people I care about require it for effective representation. Hmm. Wow. I appreciate that honesty. And I feel like you're certainly speaking to me right now because I was just talking about authenticity on the podcast and just having those conversations and realizing how we dim parts of ourselves to fit into society and how like it can just be little moments over time of betraying yourself. And then you wake up realizing, wait, I'm not really being true to myself. I'm not stepping into the lion part of myself when I need to. And especially, you know, being a black man, like you said, a bigger black man, really wanting to be someone that is, what's the word, approachable, that is not intimidating. Yeah. 
And I'm just so grateful that you recognize that and that you're stepping into that because we need your advocacy and we need your voice. And, you know, speaking of your voice, do you have advice for people out there who want to follow a similar purpose-driven path in life? Yeah, I heard a quote one time and it was about finding people in your life who would throw gasoline on your dreams and water on your fears. And I feel like part of pursuing a purpose-driven life is having people who will champion you when you are feeling doubt, but also people who will encourage you when you're trying to take a risk. You know, I think about back during the pandemic, I wrote an opinion piece about white supremacy and racial justice. And the reason I wrote the opinion piece is that one of my like straight white male friends was like, hey, Antonio, I feel like you're a good writer. You have a unique voice on this topic. You should write something and I will help you find a publisher if you can't find one. And just having that person like believe in me when I was sort of being timid, I think was like a beautiful thing that started me writing additional opinion pieces. And I, you know, have like a a voice I've developed on these issues. And I feel like that was something that happened because I had someone who I trusted to sort of be my champion. And I feel like oftentimes the people in your life really do dictate your trajectory. And I think it, it feels not harsh, but you do have to cultivate like certain atmospheres in your life. And that means that you have to sometimes say yes to certain friendships and colleagues and say no to other friendships and colleagues, right? And so for me, I think about, you know, I have a, a good friend here who whenever, like when I apply for a Fulbright, for example, he like read my essays and he wasn't like, why do you want to do a Fulbright? He's like, yes, like, let's go, Antonio. And I think finding those people, whether it be family or friends, is key to a purpose-driven life because there's enough like, you know, natural inclinations to not take a risk, to not step out, that if you have people to reinforce that under the guise of being pragmatic or rational or reasonable, you're just like not going to go anywhere. But if you have people who can see who you truly could be and letting those people dictate your life trajectory, I think you can achieve a lot more. And you'll also have joy because you're not fighting your closest confidants. They're your cheerleaders and you're doing the same for them as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that insight too. And you have certainly been that person in my life. And so I appreciate you. I've always coming to you, Antonia, what do you think about this? Or what do you think <laughs> about this? Like, can you come on my podcast? And, <laughs> <laughs> and so I am just grateful for your friendship and your encouragement. And this conversation has just been so enlightening. And it's just really, I don't know, it's warmed my heart. So I'm so happy that we're releasing it during the holiday season because I think it's going to inspire so many people. You've already shared so many gems. If you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners, I'd love to hear them. Yeah, I think my last thing I would share is to really dream big. I feel like we have a society that tells people that have muted hopes and muted dreams. And I feel like everything I've done is because I've had a dream and I tried to dream big. I mean, it's wild. Like, I grew up in a working class home in South LA where no one in my family had gone to college, where no one had like left the country before. And now I've been to 40 countries. I went to Yale, Berkeley. I did a Fulbright. Like, these were inconceivable 
when I was born. And I think part of it is I had a dream. I believed that I could do things that people around me had never done before. And I feel like having that sort of almost prophetic worldview, a worldview where you see into the future what currently does not exist. I think we need to cultivate more of that because that's also, I think, what is the goal of a civil rights lawyer? Like we're trying to create a future that has not existed, a future where Black people have dignity, where we are are belonging to every aspect of our society without exclusion. Like that has never happened in this country. And I think that like, that's what motivates me to go to work every day. I think that also is what we will have to do as a society, as a country, if we do want to have a multiracial democracy that includes everyone. And I feel like that sort of prophetic dreaming is how you get there. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share the podcast with friends and family. And my hope is that these stories help you navigate your No Straight Path journey. If this content is adding value to your life, and I hope it is, please take a few minutes out of your day to rate the show and write a review. You can click the link in the show notes to write a review. It helps other listeners find the show, and I just really appreciate it. Have a lovely week, embrace the journey, and remember, you're not alone.